The House will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate will also return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week on the House floor, the House came back into session last Monday evening. They passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed H.R. 3971, the Community Institution Mortgage Relief Act, by a, mo by a vote of 294 to 129. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.R. 1638, the Iranian Leadership Asset Transparency Act, by a vote of 289 to 135. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 2396, the Privacy Notification Technical Clarification Act, by a vote of 275 to 146. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 4324, the Strengthening Oversight of Iran's Access to Finance Act, by a vote of 252 to 167, and then they were done. This week on the House floor, they'll return Monday, at which time they'll try to take up eight bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House will try to take up another three bills under suspension. Then they'll move to the conference report on H.R. 1, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Then they'll move to H.R. 3312, the Systemic Risk Designation Improvement Act, and H.R. 4015, the Corporate Governance Reform and Transparency Act. And then probably Thursday, they'll consider the House Amendment to the Senate Amendment to H.R. 1370, which is the fancy designation for the combination defense omnibus slash continuing resolution to keep the government funded beyond Friday. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned to work last Monday evening and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Leonard Grace to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. The vote to confirm was 50 to 48. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Don Willett to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Willett to that position. The vote to confirm was 50 to 47. Later Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of James Ho to be a U.S. Circuit Judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm James Ho to that position on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then they were done. And yes, you heard me right. Because of the Senate Democrats' determination to abuse Senate rules to eat up as much time as they can on each nomination, the Senate spent all its time last week voting through a grand total of three nominees to the federal bench. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return Monday. At some point during the week, the Senate will move to consider the nomination of J. Paul Compton to be the general counsel of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And the Senate will move to consider the nomination of Owen West to be Assistant Secretary of Defense. And at some point, most likely Wednesday, the Senate will vote on the conference report for H.R. 1, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Then the Senate will take up the continuing resolution that comes over from the House, and Congress will be done for the year. On the FBI front, Representative Jim Jordan, who sits on the House Judiciary Committee, has been using his position to grill executive branch officials over the FBI's questionable conduct in the Hillary Clinton email probe and the ongoing Russian collusion investigation. A week and a half ago, FBI Director Christopher Wray was on the hot seat at a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. Last week, it was Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. In both cases, Jordan pressed for explanations and demanded answers. You can find a write-up in the suggested reading. Now Jordan says he's gotten a commitment from Committee Chairman Bob Goodlatte to issue subpoenas for top officials at the FBI and DOJ. In an appearance yesterday on Fox News' Justice with Judge Janine, he referred specifically to FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, top FBI counterintelligence official Peter Strzok, 
FBI Attorney Lisa Page, and former Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr and his wife, Nellie, who worked as a Russia expert for Fusion GPS and allegedly worked on the infamous Steele dossier. On the immigration front, well, I really won't believe it until I see it. But for now, I have to report to you that congressional Democrats appear to be backing off their demands for a legislative fix for DACA as part of the year-end omnibus spending bill. For weeks, I've been telling you I expected we would see a DACA fix added to that must-pass legislation. And for weeks, Republican leaders have been insisting that since DACA won't be terminated until President Trump's order under President Trump's order until March of 2018, there's no need to treat it like an emergency and add it to the year-end spending bill. But now I've heard it from Luis Gutierrez, one of the fiercest advocates of amnesty for illegal immigrants, including the so-called Dreamers. In an interview with The Hill published last Wednesday, Gutierrez acknowledged that because Republicans control the majorities in both houses of Congress, he may not get a DACA fix until 2018. And that Hill interview, followed by one day the publication in Politico of an article headlined, quote, Dems back away from Brink on Dreamers, which led with this quote, quote, Democratic lawmakers aren't going to shut down the government to save Dreamers in December. And then went on to say Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have, quote, subtly shifted their rhetoric in recent days and aren't insisting that deportation relief be paired with a government funding bill this year, end quote. As I said, I'll believe it when I see it. On the Russia probe front, the big news this week is the blockbuster report from Axios yesterday that the Mueller investigation team is now in possession of tens of thousands of emails from 12 members of the Trump transition team. According to news accounts, the Mueller team has used those emails, about 7,000 of which were said to come from just one account, to better inform their investigation and their questions. The Trump transition team lawyers believe those emails were obtained illegally in violation of Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure and various privacy laws. But Mueller's critics respond that any email account, I'm sorry, Mueller's critics' critics respond that any email account carried on the GSA servers is a government-owned email, and those email account holders should have known that they had no reasonable expectation of privacy. In fact, members of the transition team were given documents when they first showed up for work explicitly stating that they had no reasonable expectation of privacy on any email account hosted by GSA servers, as these emails were. On the Senate Rules front, on Tuesday of this week, the Senate Rules and Administration Committee will meet to consider a resolution sponsored by Senator James Langford of Oklahoma that would reduce the time for debate that's necessary to confirm executive branch and judicial nominees. Under current Senate rules, once cloture is invoked, that is, once the Senate votes to end the debate on a bill or a nomination, the Senate then continues for up to another 30 hours of debate before the vote is called. Sometimes that post-closure debate time can be reduced by unanimous consent. But if anyone objects, usually a member of the minority, the Senate has to debate for another 30 hours before it can vote. And when it comes to confirming President Trump's nominees, Senate Democrats have, for the most part, been insisting on using up the entire 30 hours of post-closure debate time. That's how we get weeks like last week in the Senate, where they spent all their time debating and voting through a grand total of three nominees. Langford's proposal would reduce post-cloture debate time. Senior executive branch nominees and appeals court and Supreme Court nominees would get eight hours of post-cloture debate, 
while district court nominees would get two hours of post-closure debate time. Here's what's really going on. Senate Republican leaders are threatening to change the rules again if Senate Democrats won't stop abusing the process. They don't really want to change the rules, but they're trying to show Democrats they're serious about moving on confirming Trump nominees. Stay tuned. On the sexual harassment front, several items of note on the congressional sexual harassment front this week. First, 56 female Democrat lawmakers last Monday asked the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to investigate allegations of sexual misconduct by President Trump. That followed the appearance Monday morning on Megyn Kelly's TV show of three women who had accused the president of various forms of sexual misconduct during the campaign last year. Second, Nevada Democrat freshman Congressman Ruben Kiwen, whom Nancy Pelosi has already called on to step down for one sexual harassment accusation, had a second accuser appear last week. Pelosi reiterated her call on him to step down. The House Ethics Committee announced it would open an investigation into Kiwen's actions, but he probably short-circuited that when, at the end of the week, he announced he would not run for re-election in 2018. Third, Republican Blake Parenthold, who used $84,000 in taxpayer funds to settle a sexual harassment claim by a former staffer, announced he would A, pay back the Treasury, and B, not run for re-election in 2018. Fourth, a female Democrat challenger to Republican Congressman Kevin Yoder of Kansas announced she would terminate her campaign after the Kansas City Star began questioning her about accusations made against her in a sexual harassment lawsuit that was settled by her business in 2005. Fifth, Democrat Congressman Bobby Scott of Virginia on Friday denied an allegation that he had sexually harassed a staffer back in 2013. Sixth, and finally on Friday, The Hill's John Solomon reported that Lisa Bloom, <clears throat> excuse me, Lisa Bloom, the daughter of Gloria Allred, who formerly represented Harvey Weinstein, quote, sought to arrange compensation from donors and tabloid media outlets for women who made or considered making sexual misconduct allegations against Donald Trump during the final months of the 2016 presidential race, according to documents and interviews, end quote. You can read more about that in the suggested reading. On the spending front, the current continuing resolution funding the government expires on Friday at midnight. If Congress doesn't pass and the president doesn't sign a bill extending government funding before then, the government would go into a temporary partial government shutdown beginning at 12.01 a.m. Saturday morning. The House and Senate will both pass the tax reform conference report this week, then immediately move to take up the spending bill. And we're still not sure exactly what's going to be in that spending bill, which is exactly the way the leadership wants it. As of the middle of last week, House leaders were moving ahead with a spending bill that would fully fund defense appropriations for the rest of the 2018 fiscal year above the sequestration cap, and then use a continuing resolution to extend current funding levels for all remaining agencies of the federal government until July, I'm sorry, until January 19. The House Appropriations Committee filed that bill just a few hours after the House Republican Conference meeting last Wednesday. That bill, which is being referred to as the Defense CR, also includes five years of funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program, which ran out of money at the end of September. There are other possible attachments that could be added on, another disaster supplemental, and possibly reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, though I don't expect we'll see Section 702 reauthorized until next year on a separate bill.
So at least one option under consideration by the House Republican leadership is to pass this defense CR through the House, send it to the Senate, and go home for Christmas. That way, the Senate would be left with no option but to pass with the House Senate or risk a government shutdown. But as we know from history, the Senate tends to be better at jamming the House than the House is at jamming the Senate. So the House may try passing that defense CR, but then stick around to see what the Senate does. Or they may change their minds before bringing the spending bill to the floor and instead send over something they're confident the Senate will pass, like a so-called clean CR that would just extend funding at current levels through mid-January. But either way, it's important to note that unlike past years, it does not look like conservatives are going to get the short end of the stick on a funding bill thrown at them right before a hard recess like the Christmas break. And that's in large measure due to the determination of our conservative allies in the House. And that's in large measure due to the support you've shown them as they've worked to hold true to their guns on the spending front. Now to the tax reform front. Senate Finance and House Ways and Means staffers worked through the weekend last weekend to produce draft discussion documents. By the time the conference met officially on Wednesday at 2 p.m., the negotiators had already wrapped up their agreement. For the most part, the conference report measure looks like the Senate bill. That's not surprising, given that there's less room for error in passing the final bill through the Senate. The more the conference report looks like the bill that passed the Senate, the better its chances of passage in the upper chamber. That's not to say there were no changes from the Senate bill. There were. The final text of the conference report was released at 5.30 p.m. Friday afternoon. The corporate rate was set at 21% rather than the 20% level that had passed both houses earlier. This was done to free up some savings that could be deployed elsewhere. Remember, each one-point drop in the corporate rate is worth about $100 billion in revenue flow to the Treasury over a decade. The top individual tax rate was also lower. The House version of the bill left the top rate alone for couples making a million dollars or more. The Senate bill lowered that top rate from 39.6% to 38.5%. The conference report compromise lowers that top rate to 37%. That'll help a lot of small business owners who pay their business taxes through their individual returns, so-called pass-through businesses. The final bill looks more like the Senate bill than the House bill on the question of brackets. There are still seven brackets on the individual side, the same as current law, but the rates and thresholds are lower. The child credit is increased from $1,000 under current law to $2,000, higher than in both the House and the Senate bill, and the maximum amount that is refundable rises to $1,400, up from $1,100 in the Senate bill. The conference report preserves popular deductions for charitable giving and mortgage interest, though it lowers the cap on the mortgage interest deduction from a million dollars to $750,000 on new mortgages. Current mortgages are grandfathered in, so you can continue to deduct interest on your mortgage just as before. The final bill also added some flexibility on the state and local tax deduction front. Under the conference report, taxpayers can choose to take up to a $10,000 deduction for state and local income taxes or sales taxes or property taxes. The bill leans toward the Senate version by keeping the deduction for medical expenses, the deduction for student loan interest, and the exclusion from taxable income of tuition waivers for graduate students. All were eliminated in the House bill, but made it into the final compromise. The conference report would deal with the trillions of dollars of profits held overseas by U.S. firms by instituting a one-time tax rate of 15.5% for cash held overseas and 8% for earnings that were reinvested into buildings or equipment. 
On the downside, the conference report does not eliminate either the death tax or the alternative minimum tax for individuals, but it does raise the exemption amounts. The corporate alternative minimum tax, which had been kept in the Senate bill, is eliminated. As for pass-through businesses, they get a 20% deduction, and the first $75,000 of pass-through income is subject to a tax rate of just 8%. The bill also repeals Obamacare's individual mandate beginning in 2018 and allows for drilling in a portion of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. In order to meet bird rule requirements that the legislation add no more than $1.5 trillion to the deficit, the individual tax cuts expire after eight years. The corporate rate cut and the individual mandate repeal, though, are permanent. Republicans got a double shot of good news on Friday when both Marco Rubio and Bob Corker announced they would vote for the bill. Corker, you will recall, had voted against the bill the first time it hit the Senate floor, citing his concern over the possibility of adding to the national debt. Rubio had threatened to vote against the bill if he couldn't get more refundability for the child tax credit. But both of them said Friday afternoon that they would vote for the bill. Things took a slight turn for the worse on Sunday, though, when Axios reported that Senator John McCain had returned to Arizona after being hospitalized in Maryland for side effects of his treatment for brain cancer. McCain will miss the vote this week, which means Majority Leader McConnell has only a 51 to 48 majority to work with and can only afford to lose one vote. The House is expected to take up the conference report on Tuesday, and the Senate will take it up after it passes the House. And that's our update for this week.